The recipe for a great story is always the same. All right? The key ingredients are a, a villain that is terrifying and destructive, a problem that is impossible and dark, and then a savior. Right? So if you mix these things together, you have all the workings of a great story. That you've got all the ingredients that you need for a great tale. Uh, so what you have to do is you have to paint a picture that is pitch black and dark where there's no hope and hope is all but gone and it's helpless and hopeless. And when hope is all but gone and death is certain and sure, in comes flying a hero, a savior, a deliverer. And when they come in, you breathe a sigh of relief and the story changes. And now you have all the makings of a great tale, right? You know that from your own experience. A nuclear bomb is about to go off, and in less than 24 hours, Jack Bauer defuses the bomb, right? And he does it with no bathroom breaks, which is the other unbelievable part. Seven years, I never saw him go to the can, which was, it's almost like I could believe you could defuse seven different nuclear bombs, but seven years with no trip to the can, like what do they think, I'm stupid or something? But, um, so, so you had that. Or Gotham City's in danger, and at just the right moment, the Dark Knight flies in. Narnia is in trouble, and then Aslan shows up. You get the idea, we could keep going, but in all these stories, you've got this terrifying villain, this impossible problem, and at just the right moment, a hero, a deliverer, a savior appears. And, and I think we love those stories, and we're so drawn to that because there's a sense in which it reflects this reality on the surface of our hearts that we, are people that need a savior. I think we're drawn to it because we recognize our own need to be rescued, delivered, and saved. And, and so we're drawn to that kind of a story. Now some of you may say, look, I don't know what you're talking about because that sounds religious and I don't find any such need. I don't find myself needing to be rescued or saved. But one of the things that a pastor named Tim Keller has helped our generation to understand and see is that all of us are looking for someone or something to rescue us, to deliver us, to save us. That, that each of us, whether we call ourselves religious or not, everybody wired into the surface of the human heart is this desire to be rescued, this desire to be saved, this desire to be delivered from something. So for example, if you've got a man who is so troubled by being alone for so long, or you can insert any struggle or problem, and, and he's so bothered to his core, he, he turns to something to numb his pain, right? He turns to something to escape that problem. And so he'll turn to, and you can fill in the blank. It can be anything. He'll turn to drugs, or he'll turn to alcohol, or he'll turn to porn or he'll turn to work and and you can say whatever you want to say about it you can say that his problem is an addiction to porn or an addiction to alcohol or whatever it may be but deep down what he's looking for is a savior he's crying out to something saying this pain in my heart is so great for me to bear would you and fill in the blank please rescue me, save me, comfort me, help me to escape from this reality that I have to face. And rather than facing it, would you provide me a way out? Or, or a woman is so desperately afraid of feeling like she's worthless. She so desperately wants for someone to look at her and tell her that she's worth something, is meaningful, is beautiful, is, is worth something. She's dying for someone to deliver her from insignificance, to save her from the hell of feeling like she's unnoticed or worthless. And so she'll turn to, and you can fill in the blank. She'll turn to multiple partners. She'll turn to her work. If she's religious, she'll turn to her good deeds. And through all those things, you can call it whatever you want. She, you can say that her problem is that she's a workaholic or that she's promiscuous. But deep down, what she's longing for, what she's looking for, is a savior, right? She's crying out, please save me from the hell of feeling like I'm worth nothing. Please save me from the hell of feeling like I'm insignificant or worthless or meaningless. Give me identity and purpose. And so whatever the thing is, she reaches out to it as a savior. And we all do it. We've just got different things. 
And the great irony of that whole thing is that the very things that we turn to, looking for them to save us, rather than saving us, end up enslaving us. So that's not just me trying to turn a phrase. I'm, I'm telling you the truth here. The very things we look to and say, save me, deliver me, rescue me, rather than saving us, they enslave us. Rather than helping us, they destroy us. So, for example, you intend to use something to get what you're after, but that false savior won't let you just use it. It'll turn around and use you. Right? Nobody starts off trying to get addicted to wine. It's just something you need to get the edge off. And so you turn to it. Your intention is to use it to get what you're after. Comfort, pleasure, escape, relief. But the, the irony is these false saviors will not let you use them. They'll turn and use you. The very thing you intended to control to get you something turns around and controls you. You intended to dabble in porn so that it could provide you an escape, give you some pleasure for your boredom. And it will not let you just use it. It will turn around and use you. It won't let you control it. It turns around and controls you. These very saviors that we seek to save us from our deal inside turn around and enslave us. And what the scriptures are trying hard to teach us is you will either find false saviors that in turn enslave you or you will receive the Savior that God has provided. You'll either receive the, the Savior God's provided who alone can set you free, who alone can give you what you're looking and longing for, or you'll turn to one false Savior after another, and they will, instead of helping you, end up destroying you. That's the truth the Scriptures want to convey. But the, the brilliant thing about the Scriptures is that it conveys that truth in many different ways. One is, instead of just communicating that propositionally, the scriptures will communicate that truth narratively. So what I mean is, that truth can come to us in an epistle in the second half of our Bible as a bunch of truth statements. It can also come to us in the form of narrative, in the form of story. So that as you're hearing a story, it's like the scriptures want to pull you into the story and show you great truths through the story. And show you actually that that story is really your story. That's what's happening in Exodus chapter 2. When you get to Exodus 2, you have all the makings of a great story. An epic tale. You've got a villain of villains. You've got a problem that is so impossible, hope is all but gone, death is certain and sure. And then, in comes flying a savior a hero, a deliverer. And when you read Exodus 2, what becomes blindingly clear is that the people in this story need a savior. That's the truth. But the good news is God has provided one. And what the story intends to do is draw you in so that you see that what is blindingly clear for your story is you need a savior. But the good news is that God has provided one. The truth is you need a savior. The good news is God has provided one. And what we're going to see in Exodus 2 is that in Moses, God provided a deliverer for Israel. Even as in Jesus, God provided a deliverer for us. Right? That's what I want us to see today. That in Moses, God provides a savior for Israel, even as in Jesus, God would provide a greater savior for us. We're going to pray for a moment, and then we're going to dive into Exodus 2 and hear this story that it might become ours as well. So pray with me. Pray for yourselves, even as we hear God's word. Our God, we come to you and in prayer. Not to nod a glance of acknowledgement to you, but to say that we're desperate for you to soak this whole time, both the communicating and the hearing of your word, so that my words would be yours the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. And so that the ears of your people might be attentive, that their hard hearts might be softened, their blind eyes open, their deaf ears to hear, their dark minds to be illuminated with light and understand. We pray that you would break down any resistance to your word, but that we might receive it 
as what it is, the implanted word which is able to save our souls. We look to Jesus, our Savior, and we pray that you would make much of him and rally us all and our hearts to him this day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll pick up the story. We're going to start in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 22. So if you have a Bible, we'll start there. Here's what it says. One verse before the beginning of chapter 2. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So if you're just jumping in or if you're here for the last two weeks, let me just get you caught up on where we are. When you're about to enter chapter 2, here's the scene. You've got this king who shows up in Egypt, and he is threatened by the growth of the Hebrew population. That's what we saw in chapter 1. This immigrant people are growing, exploding like weeds in his country, and he sees them, he's a bit paranoid, he sees them as a threat to his nation, as national security, and as a threat to his power and his throne. And because of that, he will do whatever it takes to eliminate that threat to his power, to his throne. And so something needs to be done about the growing Hebrews. And what he comes up with, that something is slavery. So in, in chapter 1, we saw that one of the things that he institutes in order to stop the multiplication of the Hebrews is slavery. His thinking is, if I, will, if I can just oppress them, then I can stop their growth. But then we read in chapter 1, in verse 12, that the very thing that he intended to do works against him. And that becomes this refrain. If you were here two weeks ago, we said that. The refrain throughout the chapter is everything Pharaoh does not only doesn't work, it accomplishes the exact opposite of what he intends. He unwittingly becomes an agent that does everything God wants to accomplish. So he's going to oppress them through slavery and end their population. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. So he's got to go back to the drawing board, which is what he does. And he says, okay, slavery's not working. And he comes up with a new plot. Last week, we looked as he assigns these two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. And he says to them, listen, when you're helping in labor, when the child is coming out, if it is a son, if it's a male, you're to kill it and make it look like an accident. If it's a female, if it's a daughter, let it live. And that's his plan. And now he's going to get them. And again, it works against him. They are God-fearing women. They do not obey Pharaoh. They rather obey God. And so they let the children live. God blesses them for the very thing that Pharaoh intends to use them and destroy them by. And then in verse 20, we're told, and guess what happens to the Hebrews? They multiply and they fill the earth even more. So now he goes back to the drawing board a third time for his final solution, which is what we read in verse 22. The, the slavery thing hasn't worked. The killing the boys through Shiprampua hasn't worked. So now he orders this national edict, sends out this command throughout the whole land, tells all the Egyptians, if you see your Hebrew neighbor with a baby boy, you are to rip that baby boy away from his mom and throw the kid into the Nile. He is now ordered a genocide. Right? The first two didn't work, so he's deepened the plot. He's ordered a national genocide so that all the children are to be thrown into the Nile. So, so think through that for a second. Because if, when we pick up this story, the scene really is pitch black. When we're about to enter into chapter 2, you could not get a more impossible problem. Death is certain and sure. Because what's happening is sons are being ripped away from the breasts of their moms and thrown into the Nile. Literally, sons are being drowned to death. And again, a, a preview of what's to come, of how God will turn the tables on everything this Pharaoh does. It's almost like the text is already beginning to poke fun at him and say, are, are you watching what's about to happen? Because here's Pharaoh's thought. These sons are going to grow up to become the army of the Hebrews who's going to pose a threat to me. That's, that's what he says in chapter 1. What if they join an army and fight against me? So what he's going to do is he's going to drown the Hebrew army. But wouldn't you know, by the time we get out of this story, God's going to turn the table so that it's precisely through the waters that the Hebrews will be saved. And who ends up drowning but the Egyptian army? 
God's going to turn this whole thing so that the very way in which he intends to defeat God is how God is going to finally defeat him. Every fist he throws up against God, God is going to smack down to the earth right onto his head. And so you get this preview of what is to come. But we're not up to chapter 14. We're up to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, everything is dark. Because right now the scene is babies are being hurled into the Nile to their death. So that's where we pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him three months. So here's the context. Into this genocide, a Hebrew couple comes together, a Levite man and a Levite woman. They come together, they get married. In their union, she conceives a son and births a baby boy. Into this world where baby boys are being slaughtered, she has a son. And then the text tells us that when she saw that he was a fine child, she decided to hide him for three months. And we're not entirely sure what that means. As if the kid was ugly, maybe she wouldn't have hid him. But, but the text tells us she's a, he's a fine child, and so she hides him for three months. So what new mom doesn't look at their baby boy and think this is a fine child, this is a handsome boy, this kid is special. But there's something a little bit more going on here. In, in fact, literally that phrase is translated that this was good. And, and, and we've been saying the last few weeks, if you're reading Exodus, the reader of Exodus already knows the Genesis story. And so there's hints of Genesis all throughout this. And, and now here's this new creation, and over that creation is pronounced, and it was good. And so the reader is immediately drawn back to echoes of Genesis where God was starting something new and, and pronounced that it was good. And so if you're the reader, you're almost tempted to think, what is God up to? Right? If you're drawn into the story as though you're hearing it for the first time, you at this point are going, what is so special about this child? What is it that God is doing this new creation and pronouncing it good while all the other boys are drowning in the Nile? What's so special about this kid? What is God up to? And so we read that this mom hides this child for three months. And, and Hebrews, the, the New Testament, will later be a commentary on this section and tell us that she did that by faith. One of the great things about this passage is we don't even know her name. We're not told her name till Exodus 6, where we find out her name is Josheveth. Right now, she's nameless. And yet this ordinary woman will make it to Hebrews 11. If you know Hebrews 11, that's this chapter of the Hall of Fame of the people of faith. In that chapter are the giants, Abraham and David and all the rest and their mighty feats. And this unnamed ordinary mom makes it into Hebrews 11. That God notices her faith and records it for all of history so that we might look at this unnamed woman and say that's what faith looks like. And the idea was, Hebrews 11 is going to say, that her faith was for her God to protect this baby. Meaning she had more faith in God about what would happen to him than fear of Pharaoh. That's what Hebrews 11 says. That she had greater faith in God concerning her child than fear of what God's enemy might do to him. It's by faith that she hides this baby for three months. And, and we're going to see that faith in work, at work, in the very next verse. Look at verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So mom hides him for three months. And you can imagine, you know, she holds him close, whispering hush every time she, he cries. You know, sort of trying to make sure that he makes no loud cries for at any moment the doors could be thrown open. And an Egyptian guard could come in and rip that baby away and throw it into the Nile. But now, the kid is three months old. And you know by three months, those lungs have grown. And now, you can't hide the baby. You can't keep it from crying. And so when she could hide him no longer, she's left with very little options. So what does she do? She grabs a basket. She waterproofs it with bitumen and pitch. And she puts the baby into the basket and onto the Nile. 
It's like the text, again, is poking fun, almost to say, she obeys Pharaoh, she just does it a little different, right? He wants the babies in the Nile, that's exactly what she's going to do, only she puts it in a waterproof basket, right? It's, it's, again, almost like the text is poking fun at this Pharaoh. He's strong and mighty, and yet he's constantly being undone by nameless Hebrew slaves. It's like the text wants you to see this guy is a few bricks short of a pyramid, right? And, and he's mighty, and he's strong, and he's the power of Egypt, and he's the incarnate God, sun god Ra, and he keeps getting outdone by Hebrew slaves, by Shipra and Pua and Joshebed, right? We know their names thousands of years later, and we don't even know this Pharaoh's name because God keeps working against this man. Everything that he's going to do, God unwittingly works against him. And so she, she obeys the Pharaoh and puts the baby in a basket onto the Nile. And, and what's interesting is this word for basket is actually literally the word ark. And, and so again, the, the one who's read this story and has known about Genesis, their mind goes back and echoes, you're telling me now a chosen one, a special one, is going to be placed into an ark and placed onto the waters while others are drowning in the waters, this one is going to be spared and saved. Where have we seen that before? And it echoes back to Genesis 6 where God tells Noah there's this flood coming and God chooses a special one and places him in the ark. And while all others are being destroyed by the watery grave, this one is being spared and saved. And what comes forth from that ark is a new people. And it's almost like the reader is drawn into the story and say, what is God up to? What's up with the ark again? And why is there others drowning in the waters while this one is chosen as if God's going to do something, as if God's going to bring forth a, a new people? And it's as if the reader has hope beginning to flicker in his heart. Maybe God is at work. Maybe God is about to do something. And so this mother with very few options, a mixture of desperation and faith, faith in God, as Hebrews 11 tells us, she does what every mother will eventually need to do. She entrusts her child to God. She entrusts her child to God. And I want to take a two-second tangent to say Joshebed is a really good example for moms and dads because she's a picture of what every mom and what every dad will need to do. That is, faith in God concerning your children needs to trump fear, fear over them. Faith in God as their great protector needs to trump your own sense that you are their great protector and deliverer. She does what every mom is going to need to do. If it seems like she's abandoning her child, it is only to the Lord, even as all will need to do, even as Liz will need to do with Michaela, even as all of us will need to do with her children. Josephine's a really good person to remember when you're dropping your five-year-old for their first day of school. And to remember when you're <coughs> dropping your 18-year-old off for their first day of college. That, that what we're doing is we're entrusting these kids to the Lord. That the waves of his providence will take them exactly where he wants to take them. That you will not protect them best by holding them close. You will protect them best by trusting them to the Lord. And allowing the waves of his providence to direct their lives and take them exactly where he wants to take them. So where does the waves take this baby boy? Look at verses 5 through 10. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went home and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, 
because she said, I drew him out of the water. Listen, friends, do you see what just happened? We've said in two weeks ago, God is hardly mentioned in chapter 1. In chapters 1 and 2, you don't even hardly hear of God. And the question the text sort of births is, in the midst of all this suffering and in the midst of all this death, where is he? And yet without his name being once spoken, do you see his hand at work in all of it? Think through this. By just luck, pure coincidence, happenstance, just good dumb fortune, no, by the sovereign power and plan of God, the waves of the mighty Nile, the tides and the current, drop this ark at who else's house but the Pharaoh's own doorstep. I can imagine if you're Joshebed, you want to put this baby on the Nile to get him as far away from Pharaoh as possible. But God has a different plan. And instead of bringing him as far away as possible, God literally drops the basket with the baby at Pharaoh's doorstep. And then who else, again, by good luck, good fortune, dumb chance, who else but Pharaoh's own daughter goes out at that moment with her little entourage to take a bath and at just the right time when the basket is flowing by, sees it in the reeds. She asks her servant to go and get it, and so the servant does. And, and when they open it, this, this Pharaoh's daughter sees that it's a Hebrew child. Maybe in the way that it looked, maybe the boy was circumcised, maybe there was something about it, but the, the mom knows, the, the Pharaoh's daughter knows this is a Hebrew child. And yet the text tells us that unlike the hard heart of her father, her heart is broken, it's melted. In fact, the text gives us this detail, the baby was crying. So you can picture this three-month-old baby, helpless in a basket, it's crying, and this young girl's heart melts. It breaks, it pities, the text says, this child. So now, the sister, the baby's sister, is off to the side and has been watching to see where is the basket gonna go, and at that moment, she sees Pharaoh's daughter, of all people, draw the basket in, open the lid, and maybe she studies her face. And maybe she sees that rather than anger, what she saw in her face was pity or compassion. So this little resourceful girl springs into action and she says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go get someone to nurse the child for you? Right, there's, that, that's a good question because there's no formula. If this baby's going to eat, if this baby's gonna survive, someone's going to have to nurse the child. And this little girl knows and everyone knows there are plenty of new moms among the Hebrews. That's the problem, right? They're all having babies. That's what Pharaoh's trying to stop. And so she goes to the Pharaoh to say, I know just the person who can nurse this child for you. And so when all is said and done, she goes and gets her mom, the baby's own mother, and brings her to the Pharaoh and says, here's someone to nurse you. Nurse the child. And the Pharaoh's daughter, get this, will say, you can take this child and I'll pay you wages so that you nurse this baby. So, so when all is said and done, this baby is not only spared, but brought to the doorstep of Pharaoh so that Pharaoh's own daughter, at the expense of Pharaoh himself, will give the child back to his mom and pay the mom to nurse the baby. And that's when you go, do you not see God's hand is at work in this whole thing? I mean, God is at work everywhere. This child will end up the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, the adopted grandson of Pharaoh himself, the prince of Egypt. Do you believe, listen, do you believe in your life that God works like that? Do you believe that God is orchestrating all these events that are happening in your life? When your life seems all but out of control, do you really believe that God is orchestrating these things and he will turn it out for good? Do you believe that? Do you believe, not because you're going to need a, a string of good luck or, or dumb chance or good fortune, but by the sovereign power and plan of God, God is orchestrating every detail in your life to work together for good? Do you believe that the height and the highest example of God's sovereignty, the highest and supreme example of his plans in the work, 
is not to orchestrate things to crush you, but to orchestrate every last detail to crush his son for you. The greatest example of sovereignty is how God works out every single detail to get Jesus on the cross. I mean, you've got to read the Gospels again to see how detailed everything needs to work out for him to have that cross exactly when and how it happens. The greatest example of his sovereign power is not to get you, it's to get his son killed for you. Do you believe, like Moses' great-granduncle Joseph would once say, what you intended for evil, God meant for good? That what is working out here, God is working for good. Pharaoh intended all of this for evil. We said this two weeks ago, so think through it again. If Pharaoh had not issued this edict, Josheved would have raised her boy like every other slave. He would have been uneducated, no different than all the other rest working in the brickyard. And he would have lived and died like everyone else. But because, precisely because Pharaoh issues this edict, Josheved puts this baby on the Nile, where the river directed by God will take him to Pharaoh's house, and he will be provided food and nurtured by and raised at the expense of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh will raise in his house the very one who will grow up to, to dismantle his empire and free the slaves. God... Psalm 2 says, God, the nations rage against God, and God sits in heaven laughing. Like, really, you're going to defeat me. I'm going to take the very things that you intended and defeat you by them and through them. So when all is said and done, if you're the reader who's reading this story for the first time, you can't help but go, hold on. Are you telling me that this child is not only spared, but is then returned to his mom for a period of years while she's nursing him so that she can likely give him a sense of his identity and his people and his God, and then return to the Pharaoh so that, as Acts 7 tells us, he can receive the finest education in the world and be trained by the best trainers and be trained to be a leader and a general. Are you telling me you're going to get a boy now who's spared while all the other boys are being slaughtered who is going to both have Hebrew roots and Egyptian training? Tell me that's not the makings of a great story. And so you have to ask again, what is it about this child? Who is this baby? And in verse 10, we're finally told his name. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. That word Moses is from the Hebrew Masha, which means one who draws out. And again, it's like the text is hinting at this one. Could it be that this one who was drawn out of the waters is precisely the one who will draw Israel out and draw them out precisely through the waters? Could this be the Savior? And just when hope is about to flicker in your heart as you're reading this text, suddenly reality sort of dawns on you. Because there's a problem. He's growing up in Pharaoh's house. As good as this tale is starting to become, how is Israel's savior going to be the king's grandson? How on earth is that going to work? How do you know what side he's going to end up taking? Right? If, if, if you were back in history before things worked out, and you found out George Washington, the hero of the American independence, was the grandson of King George III, how would that work? Or if Gandhi was a, the adopted son of the king of England, how is that revolution going to take place? And so at this point in the text, one of the questions you're going to ask is, how do we know what side he's going to choose? Sure, he's nursed for a few years by Jochebed, but he's adopted by Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up a prince of Egypt. What side will he choose? Verse 11 will tell us. One day when Moses had grown up, Acts will comment on this and say he's about 40 years old now. So he's gone from baby to man. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. All right, we'll get to what he does in a second, because that's a bit problematic. But, but at least at this point in the text, the thing you want to know is, what side is he going to choose? 
He chooses the right side. He's with the Hebrews. In fact, the text gives us some phrases. It says, he went out. That's going to be the same phrase used to describe Israel's exodus, that they went out from Egypt. And it's almost like the text is giving you a preview to say, before Israel experiences an exodus, Moses has this personal exodus. He went out from the palace, and it's representing him going out from Egypt. And when he goes out, he sees his people, a phrase repeated twice. He sees his people, and he sees the burdens of his people, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he springs into action, and he sides with the slaves. I want you to hear for a second that that's no small thing, that he sides with the slaves. Because again, Hebrews 11, the great hall of fame of faith passage, will not just put Joshebed, but it'll put her son in that text as well. And it'll put him there precisely because he leaves the palace for the sake of God's people. That's no small thing. Moses leaves the comfort and luxuries of royalty and the palace to side with the slaves. And Hebrews makes a big deal about that and says he forsook the pleasures of sin by faith to identify with God's people. I mean, if you're Moses, wouldn't there at least be a slight temptation to think, I could do much more good for these people as a prince of Egypt, maybe even a successor to Pharaoh's throne. Then I could do some good. But he doesn't. Instead, he sides with the people. So think through that for a second. A prince who sees the burden of his people and leaves the comforts of his throne to identify with them and save them. Who's this story really about? Who's it getting you ready for? A prince, the son of God. That's what Pharaoh was. The son of God leaving the comforts of his throne to identify with an enslaved people to save them. Who's this text pointing you to? So it's no small thing, it's a great thing that Moses identifies with the Hebrews. Now how he does that, not so much, right? So he murders this Egyptian, and the text doesn't tell us much more than that. We know that his heart is in the right place, his methods, not so much. And so God will literally take him out of Egypt and exile him for 40 years to teach him a very important lesson. And here it is. This exodus will not happen by the work of your hands. This is something I'm going to do. God's going to take him out for 40 years to train him. This is not going to be pulled off by you snuffing out one Egyptian, one at a time, hiding his body in the sand, looking this way and that, making sure no one sees. When I'm ready to do this, I will do this on the grandest stage for everyone to see, and it will be done not by your hands, but by mine. Again, the Bible teaches us truth narratively. It draws us into the story to say, you cannot save yourself. Not through your good deeds, not through your religion, not through your morality, not through all the false saviors that you seek. As you're desperately trying to save yourself, the text is trying to shout to you, this will not be done by the work of your hands. If salvation is going to come, if rescue is going to come, you're going to need a savior. Because the power for this, the power for your pain, the power for your comfort, the power for meaning, these things that you seek, they're not going to come because of the work of your hands. It's going to come by the work of God and God's alone. Verse 13 and following, I won't read it, but what happens is he, he goes out the next day and now he sees two Hebrews fighting with one another. And he's got this DNA of a deliverer, so he can't help but get involved. So he asks one of them, the one who was in wrong, why are you striking your brother? This guy responds, who are you? Who made you judge and king over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And that's when Moses goes, uh-oh, this thing is found out, right? Th this thing is known. Pharaoh's now after me. I better run. But one thing I want you to observe there is, as again, you hear the story and who it's pointing to. This prince has left his throne for the sake of this people to save them, and he's rejected by the very ones he came to save. Who's this story about, really? Who's this story getting you to? This king has left all the comforts and luxuries of his palace. The Son of God has come down to rescue this people, and he's rejected by the very ones that he came to save. So now Moses has a sentence of death on his life. He's killed this man. Pharaoh knows about it, and so he runs. 
He sat down, it says, he ran to the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Verse 16, now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. All right, so now Moses has run. He's hightailed out of Egypt. He shows up at a well. Anytime you read Genesis, Exodus, the well is like our club. Whenever that appears, you know a guy and a girl are about to get together, right? Because that's Isaac shows up and, 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 and his son shows up and all their wives are met at a well. So Moses shows up at a well and you should just expect some honey is about to show up, right? So seven of them show up. And Moses is a deliverer. It's in his DNA. He can't help but work against oppression. And I, and I wonder, maybe his mom told him how he was rescued and saved. And maybe that's sewn into his DNA that if that was done for him, how could he not do that for another? Which, by the way, would be a very good question for us. If we have been rescued and saved, how can it not be in our DNA that we would do that for another? But that's in Moses' heart. So these shepherds come. Apparently, they're these shepherds that always harass them, always bother them. And so this day, they didn't expect Moses, the Egyptian, to be there. Moses springs up, shoes them all away. These seven girls get back to their dad, and dad asks them, what happened? Why are you home so early? Because this was the ongoing pattern. Every day they would try and work. These bullies would come. And this day they say to him, we were going and we were doing what we were doing. The shepherds came like always. But a, a man sprang up into action and he saved us. And then he even watered our sheep, which was an unthinkable practice in that day. That was what women did. That this guy would do that for the girls. So now if you're Ruel, you're thinking what any dad with seven daughters is thinking. Hold on, this guy is a good guy in the middle of the wilderness, and you left him there? Go get him, because one of you is getting hitched, and that's exactly what happened, right? This guy comes home, Moses comes home for dinner for one night, he ends up staying for 40 years. He marries Zipporah, uh, Ruel or Jethro, as we'll later find out, his daughter, and they end up settled down, he's tending sheep, he's got a son, he names him Gershom, he says, I'm in a foreign land, so I'm naming him Gershom. And it just seems like, ah, everything worked out. Except for that small problem of all those slaves back in Egypt who've been dying for 400 years. And it's like the text almost pulls you in to have hope. This could be the one. He could be the savior. If he's the savior, then why has he settled down in Midian? Why does he have wife and kids? And why is he leading sheep rather than people? Why is he not in Egypt? In, in fact, what's happening in Egypt? Has God forgotten what the issue is? We're very happy that Moses has settled down, but what about his people? Perhaps God has forgotten. No. Look at the text, 23. During those days, and this is how it ends. During those many days, that's the 40 years Moses will spend in the wilderness, the king of Egypt dies. So the first pharaoh dies. But slavery doesn't die with him. Instead, the people of Israel groan because of their slavery. And they cry out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. It's the first time in two chapters we actually explicitly see him. Till now he's been hinted at. And now God shows up for the first time. And when he does, listen to what he does. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It's like you, you thought God was absent all this time, and when he shows up, it's this rebounding of phrases over and over again to convince you he is much closer than you could have possibly imagined, much nearer than you could have ever dreamed. Because the text tells us God heard their groaning, that their prayers were not going to deaf ears, that these cries that they were crying for years, when it seemed like God was doing nothing, like it seemed like God was deaf, God heard their prayers. The Bible tells us that not one of your prayers is missed by God. That it's almost like your tears are bottled up in heaven and God has collected them all. <clears throat> God heard their groaning. God did more than hear their groaning, more than hear their pain. He remembered not just some intellectual remembrance, the kind of remembrance that's going to do something. 
He remembered that he had made promises. And he always keeps his promises. He had told Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your children will have a land and they will be free. And if they're not, you better believe I remember my promises. Every promise he has made, he will come through on. He remembers. But he doesn't just hear and he doesn't just remember. It says, and he saw, not just vision, but saw in a way that moves his heart to action. In fact, this word saw is the same one that is earlier used for how Moses saw his brother being beaten. And he had to do what? Spring into action. That's the way God is seeing his people. Not just I see you down there. I, I see you and I'm doing everything I can. I'm about to spring off my throne to save you. He heard them and remembered them and his promises to them. And he saw them. And then the text ends, and God knew. Right? That's a great way. Moses and Midian, what, are, what on earth is going to happen? God knew. God knew their cries. He, he, he's not aloof. He's not distant. And again, you, you've heard this likely before, but that word knew or know in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, is, is the same word of Adam knew his wife, and they had a baby. So it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's the kind of intimate knowing that a husband and wife share. And God knew in that way what Israel was going through. The prophet Isaiah would later say that when Israel was afflicted in Egypt, God was afflicted. So if you believe the Bible and take him at his word, that, that means he's not just standing at distance. He's suffering and groaning with them in their pain. This is why later in the New Testament, Jesus, when he's speaking of the persecution of the church, will say to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? He stands in such solidarity with his people that their pain is honestly and genuinely his own. And so God heard and remembered and saw and knew. And, and what the text is pushing you to consider is God is about to save God's about to rescue. God's about to come through. God's about to deliver. In fact, what Exodus 2, and, and we'll wrap up with this, what Exodus 2 does is it begins to foreshadow through Moses the salvation that God would accomplish for his people. Let me say that again. What Exodus 2 does is begin to foreshadow the salvation that God would accomplish for his people. First for Israel. Right? You think through this. Moses is going to be delivered through the waters, led into the wilderness for a period of 40 years, where he will meet with God at a great mountain with burning fire and flame. Whose story is that? Except for Israel, who will be delivered through the waters and led into the wilderness for a period of 40 years, during which they will meet with God at a mountain with fire and burning flame. The text is getting you ready for God's about to save. But if you stop at just Israel, you've missed Exodus 2. Because Exodus 2 is going to push you even further to, to think about a, a greater slavery and a greater Savior. I want you to hear that. Exodus 2 is going to push you forward to think about a greater slavery and a greater Exodus by a greater Savior. What the text is going to do is push you to see that, again, our story in this story, that it's blindingly clear we need a Savior to rescue us and save us from our sin, to provide a great exodus for us. We need a better Moses. And the text is getting you ready to see that that's exactly what God is going to do. We needed a better Moses. Would you, would you think for a second, does this story, even in its detail, sound familiar at all? Won't thousands of years later, the New Testament open with a paranoid king on the throne who is so threatened by the, the people around him, the news that there might be a savior, who orders first secretly through a few people to snuff out a baby. He does that through wise men. His name is Herod. And, and when that plan, that secret plan doesn't work out, he orders a nationwide genesis genocide through which the baby boys are to be slaughtered. And that's what you read. All these sons are dying in Bethlehem, <coughs> except for one. One child is spared and saved. 
All these sons are being slaughtered. And yet, all of a sudden, a savior is born. And then when we see him again, he's an adult. And he's come to deliver God's people. And what happens? He's rejected by the very ones that he came to save. Pushed away as though they're asking him, who made you God and king over us? And then he goes through the waters, as Matthew will tell us in baptism, and is led into the wilderness again for a period of 40, where he's anointed by the Spirit only to return to deliver God's people. And he too is placed under a sentence of death. Only it will be precisely through that death that this great prince and liberator will set his people free. I mean, that's not the story of a better Moses. But the beautiful thing is there's also great differences. Moses killed his enemy to set his people free. God would die for his enemy to set them free. Moses runs to escape death. He runs to save his life. Jesus will come precisely to give his life. Jesus will walk to Jerusalem ahead of his disciples to lay down his life. Moses rescues the people by crushing the enemy. Jesus takes us who were enemies and rescues us by being crushed himself. Exodus 2 is pushing you to see you need a savior, but the good news is that God has provided one. His name is Jesus Christ. So today, if you've been trying to save yourself, and I need you to hear that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you've worked your whole life trying to save yourself. I want you to hear the text is saying God has provided a savior. You can turn to him. You can be set free. You, you are in the slavery of your sin. You don't have shackles on your hands or chains on your feet, but your heart lays imprisoned and dead. And it cannot revive itself and it cannot set itself free. And there is a Savior who has come to set you free. Who died the death you should have died in your place to set you free. And rose again so that you might have a new heart and a new life in Him. You are not doomed to your present state. I want you to hear that. Some of you who are Christian, you know the struggle of being enslaved. And the text is saying you are not doomed to be a slave forever. You do not have to turn to these false saviors to save you. You do not have to cry out, oh, and you fill in the blank. Food, work, porn, human approval, whatever it is, oh, save me. You can turn away from these false saviors and you can receive the savior who alone can set you free. If the son sets you free, you are free indeed. And you can be free today. In Moses, God provides a savior for Israel. In Jesus, God has provided a Savior for us all, for the world. Let's pray.